Good evening and welcome to another two-man edition of the ERB podcast, the podcast about rugby. Tonight I'm your host, Antho, and I'm joined by Ant. Ant, how are you doing? How's your week going? How's life in uh, Camps Bay? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a banging two days. I think summer has officially arrived with the sniff of December being this week. It's just, yeah, we've had just two absolute pearlers. Uh, so yeah, no, it's, it's going very well. How's it, how's it in the suburbs? Yeah, also good. Hot days. First work in the week, go for a swim. Always good. Um, and not just good weather, but uh, good results for the Springboks that we are happy with. So good. Nothing quite like ending the year on an emphatic win over England. Um, I think how, are you, how are your English youths feeling about that? Are you, are you just full South African for this weekend? Um, yeah, I, I, I think... Uh, sometimes it's a bit closer than others, but when Eddie Jones was the coach, like over the last however many years, it, it leans a lot more to the South African side. So it's, it, it makes it a bit easier. So um, yeah, maybe I'm maybe I'm playing it a bit both sides, but you know, who cares? Um, it's nice to have that option. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we had we had just a couple of international matches this weekend. Obviously, the Springboks in England was our main focus, but there was also the small matter of Wales against Australia, two of the poorest perform- performing teams of the year, um, especially given... We didn't do much to rectify that um, reputation this weekend, either of them. Yeah, it was like, um, whoever was going to lose that match was really just going to have like the worst year possible. And it's come out like, they, but I don't think it's official yet, but it, all signs are pointing to getting rid of Pivak, their coach. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. But there was also yeah, U- a... was also URC this weekend, and speaking of coaches that haven't been shining themselves in glory, the Sharks coach uh, Shane Everett didn't Sean Everett didn't last uh, past Monday. The news came out yesterday. I think officially they mutually agreed to um, walk away in terms of uh, coach and team. So yeah, we'll get a bit more into the URC later, but um, I think we'll start with. The big, bigger matches from this weekend, and the biggest match, which was the Springboks against England. So let's dive straight into a winner. Um, and who's your main winner and the main takeaway from the match? Um, yeah, I've got to go for for Curtis Arnsler. I mean, he was, he's had an incredibly strong year. Let's be honest. And I think the last two tests against Italy and, and now against England really. Um, Underlined that he really should have been in that breakthrough category. Um, there are seven tries or, or six, only the third Springbok ever to score six tries in six games. Uh, and he's, you know, on for seven out of seven, uh, if you include, you know, his double. So he's, yeah, just in an incredible vein of form. I mean, his inside outside for that try was just, you know, Colby esque and beautiful. But, you know, it, it's, and that's obviously grabbed all the headlines, um, which is rightfully so. I mean, it was a pretty, pretty special piece of one on one play. As he's done kind of throughout the season, you know, I think he's shown a lot more physicality than a man of his size, not really credit for. But things that he just does really well is defensive reads. And I don't know if it's a sevens background or just he's particularly coachable. But I mean, there was that one moment where I mean, England had what a three on one or four on one or something under our poles. And he managed to swim across three defenders and still make the read. There was an early section where him and Fuff both rushed up together, forced Powell to do the forward pass. I mean, his off the ball work is, is as good as his on the ball work, um, and he's really just you know, kind of signed sealed his name as 
I don't, I don't know. I mean, is he, does he start ahead of Colby? Does he start again ahead of Mopimpi? I mean, what do, we, what do we do with a problem like Arnsa? Yeah, it is a tough one. And yeah, I've been really, really impressed. I think there was another defensive moment where it was just a perfect tackle around the angles. Um, I think it was, it was a one-on-one, but like just textbook tackle um, and at the perfect moment. But it is a, a, a really interesting conundrum in terms of the back line with everyone fit. What are they going to do? Um, it leads into my winners. Uh, I've put together Vili and Willemse, and I'll, I'll quickly explain before asking you the question about um, what we're going to do with the back line. But I was really impressed, as I have been, you know, or I always am, but more than maybe usual with Vili's performance. I think throughout the year, he's just you know, kept um, improving and growing and making sh- sure that everything is sort of running through him and like uh, working perfectly from the back. And I think the try from Arantz, obviously he had a lot to do himself, especially at the end, um, you know, beating Marcus Smith without getting touched was magnificent, of course, but um, just the play from Willemse to Vili to Kirtley so like all of them perfectly aligned. And I think Billy was just calling it and sort of without um, without taking away from anyone else, but just sort of making sure that, you know, everyone was, you know, on his wavelength. But I think it also helps like for him to have these guys playing with him. Someone like Willemse, who's really good, like that's his probably like his biggest strength, that sort of loose play type of counter-attacking. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought Willemse had a really strong game too. Uh, maybe still not quite traditionally strong as a number 10 in, in terms of like the strengths from that game, but it was one of his better performances for sure. Um, and it has helped so much having Billy playing well at 15 when he's been at 10. So the question, and that I want to ask you, is given uh, Willems has been playing well, Billy's been playing well at 15, Kirtley Arons has been playing well at 14, even 11 when he was put there, um, if Pollard's back at 10, or if Pollard's back and injury-free, who do we play where? Who doesn't make the starting lineup? Who doesn't even make the bench? I mean, there are a lot of options now. Yeah, I mean, you know, you forget that you're not even mentioning guys like um, Ken Moody, who was, you know, he took his opportunity when Arnsa was banned pretty well as well. Um, you know, you also got a couple of tries in his games. And you've got guys like Nkosi sitting in the wings. Um, I don't know if he's going to see a Springbok jersey again in the next year sure. or two. Like, I mean, given his own issues. But, yeah, it's just, you've got suddenly just a plethora of, of talent there. I mean, I think, realistically, I think Pollard slots back in at 10. Um, and I think he's still the best traditional 10 we have, albeit he's got his, his limitations. But I think he is the best 10. Um, and if you add in this goal kicking prowess, like I think I think that's a, that's a nailed on on answer. And then the next puzzle piece you fit in definitely fullback, and that is either Willemse or Vili. Uh, I don't think you can play Willemse at ten without Vili at fullback, just just as a, as a separate thing, um, because as you say, Willemse doesn't pull that that playmaking role. Um, not that that's Pollard's biggest strength, but Pollard can can do it better than, than Willems, I think, at the stage. And I think Willem, Willi is better at slotting in at that, that kind of maybe primary first receiver from 15 role um, and allowing the 10 to then be the second distributor better than Willemse is at the moment. That being said, Pollard and Willems had some really, really nice plays together. Um, but there was a lot of 
I think they, the Springboks used Pollard's like long flat pass really well. Um, I think he, he's probably the best flat passer we have in our team. And so they bring Willemsen in at 10. You know, he would draw the line, pop to Pollard, who could then do a 20-meter, 30-meter flat pass out to the wing. So, yeah, whether they go with Willemsen or Willi, I think, personally, I'd probably go with Willi because Willemsen is the better 23. Willemsen can cover... 10, 15 very well, and he's shown that he can cover, you know, 12 and, and wing. And wing as well. Uh, yeah, it was pretty impressive on the wing, to be honest. It's, um, yeah. if, it were, if it wasn't such a plentiful position, I would seriously consider it, just because he's such a good player, especially in the loose, that it's almost like it's worth having him on the field somewhere, even if it's yeah. not, you know, maybe 10, just because 10 is such a pivotal position, so maybe 10 is like the... I think he still, he hasn't quite, you know, grasped that, that that ability to take hold of the game. But as you say, he's such a useful player on the field because he's got that X factor. I mean, he created that break, um, created another one. You know, you give him a little space, he's got that, that acceleration, he's a big body. He looks for the fun players, but uh, yeah, I think he needs that unstructured nature to do it. And that's why fullback and wing kind of suit him a bit better than, than 10 necessarily. Um, so yeah, I, I would go with Pollard 10, Billy 15, Willems at 23. And then the wings, you just pick courses for courses. You know, if you want someone that's maybe a bit more physical, you can bring in a Mapimpi. If you want two live wise, you go Colby KLA. But that being said, you know, I mean, I, I feel like Arnsa has been ahead of Colby in terms of impact this year. I mean, Colby's been pretty muted. I mean, yes, he's had his issues with injury and stuff, but, you know, I, I think. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, Arnsa has been the form wing. This Africa this year, um, and and I would probably argue to start him ahead of of Colby based on pure current form at the moment. Yeah, and like you say, if the match sort of dictates like they did against Italy, possibly having Irons at eleven, and Irons has shown um, for the Bulls that he's pretty competent as a fullback option too. You know, I think he's the sort of player who a lot of people would look at and be like. Are you kidding? Why would you play him at fullback? Surely he, but he he's really good at the sort of more basic fullback play too. So, and I think that's part of yeah. what makes him a very well-rounded like international wing. Um, yeah, I mean the same applies to Colby, but I didn't love that. You know, when Colby did get a run there, that didn't didn't fool me with excitement. In all honesty, and sure. I think I just worry that a Colby. I mean, as as good as Colby and Kayla are in the air, you know, they're going to get outjumped by by a Freddie Stewart and a Geordie Barrett more often than not. You know, no matter how brave and excited they are, like it's just realistic. Yeah, for sure. You know, physical limitations are going to come in, so I think having them as your primary fullback receiver is just maybe a tad risky. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, I mean, I think going forward, like. I agree with you, Pollard is the safest option at 10, and he has the pedigree in terms of the Springboks' big matches and victories. And the same with uh, Damien Dierlinde at 12, and I don't think he's done anything wrong. He's the, no, I, I, don't, I, I think I he's team of the year material. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember the last time he had a bad game, but I, I, I remember... He, I, as long as he just stops kicking. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's he does have a couple of tries to his name from some kicks. Uh, the video that you just look all the Springboks tries. Well, but it. even that one, he could have passed it, so it would have had the same result. That kick and, was very unnecessary. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so so I think he's the safe option at twelve too. I, I remember us on our on this pod discussing um, how Willemser as twelve was a more attractive. Um, 
proposition a bit nearer at the beginning of the year. But I think I think given you know Damien Dialendi's performance as a 12, it's definitely his spot to use. But it's I, it's also a nice option potentially, even if you're shifting Dialendi out to 13 to bring Blumson in as that option. But it's yeah, like you I, said, I don't know uh, if I love Dialendi at 13. I don't think he's got the pace for it. I think you know it's such a hard defensive position, and you know yes he played against Italy, but it's Italy. I wouldn't love the idea of him starting at 13, just like against the All Blacks. Remember when, when we, I can't remember who it was, I think it was Colby that went off, and we had to shift everyone a position out. He ended up having the end of 13, um, you know, and he was found out in defense quite a lot. And so I don't love that idea um, unless we give it a lot of practice, and I don't think there's enough time to do that. And especially, guys, we have um coming back. We don't need a 13. Like, yeah. um starts at 13 ahead of. Um, uh, ahead of Delendi, you know. Yeah, but yeah for sure. That, and, that's, um, that's not too. That's not the position we're looking to fill. Yeah, I, I think like in a weird way, like the primary role is defensively for that 13. So having Creel as the backup option, I know you and all of us pretty much haven't been so hot on Creel in the past, but he's definitely put his hand up as a capable deputy, especially on the he, defensive side. Of yeah, he ticks the boxes. You know, he's not, not setting the world alight, and I think that is something we've missed. I mean, as a team that's not known for its attacking prowess, having losing one X factory type player has hurt us. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, the, the drop off in, in creativity from, from um to Krill is quite significant. Sure. So, yeah, it would be nice to have, yeah. Um, so moving on, I don't know if you want to bring up another winner from the game or if you prefer to go straight through to a loser, but let's stick with the Springboks England match. What do you have for us next? Yeah, I mean, I think we can, we can stick with, the, with, the, with a quick win, but that was just the, the handling of Sia at the end of the game. Um, it was either, and I don't think this was the case, but it was either incredibly good game management by the Springboks, um, to, to fake an HIA so he could come off the field and you could get another release forward replacement on. Obviously, for, for normal injuries, you can't bring on a sub if they've been used. Um, but I, I mean, you know, if you just looked at his body language, I don't know if he has got, we've seen his adverts, I don't know if he's got the acting capability to pull off that, <laughs> that look. I mean, he was, he was very groggy. He seemed very confused about what was going on. Um, and obviously that was at the same time as Fuff was down, the match doctor was away. And, and I think just the insistence of, of Dion Free to be like, no, Sia, like, you're coming off. I don't, it doesn't really matter what the doctor says. Like, you've got to get off the field here. Um, you know, and Sia was having yet another good game. I mean, I, you know, and I don't think anyone would say that, that bringing Ruiz on for the last, whatever it was, 15 minutes was the, the turning point. So I don't know if there's tactically too much argument for there. But it was just, it was just good to see that there was no doctors involved. There was no match officials involved. The spring box, it felt like it taken into their own hands and said, like, he's not looking good. Let's get him off the field. Uh, you know, which is, as, as I think you pointed out, a pretty obvious situation. Um, but we've seen enough cases where that hasn't been the instance. You've seen us getting smashed in the head. Nick White last week, yeah. for example, uh, getting completely cleaned out and, and they play on. Um, and then eventually sometimes get taken off for an HA like Kevin and Sailor. So it was, it was just nice to see that they kind of, they recognized that and yeah. didn't yeah. an external motivation to bring them off. I think in an ideal world, it would be, it should, like I said, it should be the bare minimum and it shouldn't really be necessary to applaud it. But like you say, in the real world, 
It very much isn't. It? I think, I don't know if that's particularly a rugby thing. It might be to do with like the sort of, you know, macho type of thing to try and run things off and not want to go off if you get hit in the head or whatever. But it's definitely a problem where players still play on. I mean, it happens in other sports too. Like, people have to, you know, sometimes get dragged off for their own good. So seeing, seeing it dealt with properly is a, is a win. And I agree with you. Um, and hopefully it will become more and more common so that we don't have to treat it as a win, but we'll see. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, from my side, just without touching on everyone, but I, I, I think it should be noted that our forwards were very dominant on the weekend. I think they pretty much all deserve to be winners. Um, I think Mostert got the official man of the match and he was just everywhere for like 80 minutes. He was just doing um, the, that sort of role of tireless running, hitting all the rucks, making all the tackles. Um, so particularly him, but all the forwards really stood up and the scrum and um, set piece was super dominant and that helped the win. Yeah, no, because I mean, it's, yeah, I, I, I do give the English all the stick and I, and I don't know how much of it is the, the players themselves. I think they don't help themselves a little bit, but a lot of it is the media driven. Uh, well, just in regards to the players, I mean, you look at, you know, uh, Carl Sinclair with his very Drake-esque styled beard, you know, that man, you could see is the minute he was off the field, he was putting beard oil in and wasn't ready to come back on the field. You know, Genge <laughs> with his very, like, perfect fade. And then you're like, oh, it's your props. You should be looking like Malherb. What are you doing? Um, and, 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 you know, so, and so that's their own problem. Maybe they're buying into the hype that, that, that gets given to them. I mean, all three, but those two and Maka have all been labeled best prop in the world at some stage in the last two, three years. Um, for, you know, they make one good carry in the midfield and that suddenly they're the best prop in the world. Um, and, you know, this, the, the, as I said, and that's more, more the like, media's fault that they, they get given this hype. Um, but to see them get absolutely manhandled repeatedly by the, the Springbok forwards, as we saw in the World Cup, and they really have not, you know, English, England do not have the dominant scrum in world rugby. Like, I don't know where all this, this nonsense about them having the best props suddenly is comes from, but I really hope that that's been put to bed because, as you say, they, they got cleaned up. I mean, folded in the loose, in the tight. Like, the English front row in particular, but their forwards in general. I mean, you know, they brought in big body Alex Coles to try and shore up their loose forwards. Nothing. I mean, he was an absolute... Non-factor. Um, Billy Boone of Hola, they pick him to move bodies, and he's just—I mean, I don't know why they pick him. Keep picking him against Africa. We've proven over and time and time again that his carrying—I don't know if it's just the style of technique, because he is a dominant carrier against other teams, but against us, it's just completely ineffective. Um, you know, there's much smaller men that are much more effective at carrying against us than, than him in particular. Um, you know, like Marietta had to resort to his niggly annoyances to try and do anything influential, and even that didn't work. So. Yeah, it was very satisfying seeing this much vaunted English pack put in this place a little bit. I did, I did enjoy that a lot. Yeah, I, I mean, last week we mentioned probably like fifth at best, like in terms of scrum, like best scrum. Yeah, at, and, at best, yeah. And yeah, because I think you know it's easy to name four ahead of them, and then it's maybe a bit more difficult. So. I, I think a lot of it is that sort of weird media pressure and obviously we get a lot of English media coming through where whether it's rugby or football or whatever, it's always overhyped. Um, and that, yeah, so, so that definitely plays a part. 
Um, yeah, and I think you mentioned some of my losses there, which like these players who are brought in for their physical impact and again, South Africa are just not um, factoring in that. Most like, yeah, obviously, Bidi Bukuli Vunipola is like the main person there, but also Manu Tulangi. Um, Hi, yeah. Just, you know, just doing nothing pretty much, not making any positive impact. So it's. I think the biggest issue with Tulangi, I and mean, I think this is, you mentioned this in the criticism of their backline in general, but you've got two tens trying to kind of do the same job. Then you've got a 12 playing 13 that's doing a 12's job. You know, so Dilendi doesn't pass that often, but that's his job, is to crash it up and take puck the ball and, and smash. But yeah. now if your 13 is doing that, well, then the ball doesn't get to the wings ever. And and I don't think I saw Tuolagi pass the ball once this weekend. I don't know if it was, you know, you maybe saw it, but every time I, I saw him got the ball, I was like, okay, cool. Well, you know, we know we can tackle him and he's not going to spread it. So, you know, there, there's no risk there. Yeah, and like it, it's a bit weird because you, if you compare it to the South African system, um, we very seldom, you know, have moves that you know involve all of our backline, and that's why I think I said earlier the 13 is most important as like a defensive position more than an attacking one. So if England had a maybe a similar system, but then like you were saying when we were talking about putting DDA at 12, it wouldn't be ideal. Similar to how Tuolangi is sort of struggling at 13, I think that sort of also shows that point that you don't want to have to shift a traditional 12 over. I mean, defensively, it's just as difficult probably to shift than it is offensive. So. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I, like, because also I think last year when England beat South Africa this time last year, Slade had a really good game, and it was like, yeah, I feel like they're just still shifting things way too much, like less than a year out before the World Cup, and they still don't know what they're doing. So just not knowing which combinations they want to use, it's a real, a real problem for them. Well, I mean, well, put it this way: from nine to fifteen, who is a nailed-on starter in their current jersey number? Yeah. Pretty Stewart. Pretty much only. That's it. He's the only person where you can say that guy is going to start in that jersey. Farrell will start probably yeah, somewhere, yeah. but 10 or 12, who knows? Yeah. Sure. Tuolagi, if they've got him available, they'll probably start him just because they love Tuolagi. I personally think he's probably, based on the evidence of this tour, he's probably a bit past it, but you know, they'll start him. But again, it's a 12 or 13. Um, you know, the wings, they don't know who they're playing there. Their nines, they definitely don't know. They don't. They, I'm not still not sure if they're convinced about the, the Marcus Smith experiment. Not a good place to be a year after the World Cup. Um, if you look at every other team, I mean, Wales know, they pretty much know their back line. Scotland know their back line. Ireland know their back line. New Zealand know their back line. Maybe they're still tossing up between Severis and Mark Talia, But otherwise, they know their back line. Aussie, okay, I mean, they just have 400,000 injuries. So they just haven't ever been able to play their back line. But I think they have a theoretical idea of what they want. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. It's just, it'll be Nick White, um, Craig Cooper, Samu Karevi, Lena Katal, and then maybe they're just fleshing out their back three a little bit, but, you know, you'd probably expect Callaway, Kuroboy, Betty to be in there. You know, it's it's pretty nailed down with England, so. Yeah. Who knows? Well, I, think, I think that's a pretty good segue, unless there's anything that you, uh, that we maybe left out and you want to touch on in the Springboks match, but otherwise, otherwise a pretty good segue into the Australia-Wales match. Um, yeah. Where a certain wing I know has who put his hand up and who you didn't mention in the probable starting lineup but might be there next year if he carries on playing the way he did. Who was that and who are you impressed with that? Yeah, I mean it's 
it's actually such a an interesting story because when he first came on the scene, it must have been 2020. Because I remember sitting at Cape Town Tens. I don't know if the first game was Barcelona versus uh, Crusaders, but there were these two new wingers that had been announced as the starting team, and no one could pronounce either of them. It was Lester Vanganuku and Mark Nwakinitawase. And, you know, so he was this guy, I think he was like a year older than his 20s, pretty big body, starting under two innings, Waratahs, which was obviously two years ago. And he had a pretty good debut season, I thought. And then at the start of this year, he wasn't even included in the trial teams. I mean, he'd fallen so far off the, the radar, which I never really understood because I always thought he was a solid enough player. I mean, he was obviously not the finished package, but he was decent. Um, and yeah, he's just kind of slowly but surely climbed his way back into form throughout the year and has definitely been the form like outside back for the Wallabies on this tour. Um, you know, he's kind of played his way into form through the Australia A games and stuff and finally got his debut. And yeah, I mean, his meters per carry stats are crazy. Um, yeah, he's just playing really, really good. Right? So as you say, it's, it's, if he keeps up this form, it's going to put a lot of pressure on, on guys like Tom Wright, um, you know, to, to, to nail, keep their places. And I mean, Tom Wright's definitely not the you know, nail on starter. I mean, he's got his good moments, but he does a lot of stupid stuff as well. Um, which probably applies to most of the Australians, <laughs> let's be honest. Yeah. I, I um, mean, there are definitely places. doing well. Yeah. Like when you have guys like Tom Wright, there are places up for grab because Tom Wright, it's just, he's just one of those players where when he's, like playing at his best, he's pretty good, but it doesn't happen that often. And to, to be honest, you could say that I think the big problem with Noakinitawase, like in that first season, um, like he showed so much potential, but he was just so up and down. He had bad games, he had like really bad games. Um, but he was so young, yeah, like you say, he was straight out of the under 20, and that was a very good Australian under 20 team, the one that lost to Australia in the final, I think, where he had a really good tournament. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to see him. Like he is an exciting player to watch as a neutral um, or as a fantasy rugby owner. I mean, <laughs> you know, he's that, he, he's that sort of player who's gonna gonna make you jump out of the seat by doing something pretty crazy. Um, and it's yeah. nice to see him doing well on the international stage. Um, and yeah, geez, this game. So. <laughs> It, it was like needed because it was that close. So for him to put up his hand in, in, in a game of this importance, like we mentioned, two of the bottom teams so desperate for a win, it was really just really good timing for him. Yeah, no, it, it, it's cool. It's cool to see him delivering. Uh, but yeah, what wasn't cool was, well, it's actually, it's, it's, it was an interesting, I mean, you know, how much of it was well skipped capitulation, but I think you know, we probably do need to give credit to, to Australia's there's a lot of question marks around them this season, but the one thing that has been a consistent out kind of certainty is effort. You know, that effort is often misdirected and they do stupid things, but you know, they don't lack any self-belief or trying, you know, to put their marks on the game. You know, I suppose that, that talks into the fact that they could come from a 21 nil deficit, um, well, 21 points behind and, and push through for the win. Yeah, I think we mentioned, not just last week, but throughout most of this year, how we've been saying they're like a really hard team to read in terms of how they're going to do on any given weekend. Just because um, they have, like, I I think, I still think Dave Rennie is a really good coach and he can get them playing well. Like when they haven't been doing well, it does seem like more of a, 
individual, like maybe it's a team um, like discipline thing, but it, it seems like less, like it seems like they have the ingredients to be a really good team. So I think that they are going to um, be a threat for anyone in the World Cup in any like single given game. But like we, I think we said last week, what we can just like struggle to see them, or maybe a few weeks ago, we like struggling to see them put together uh, a, a number of games that you need to put together in a World Cup to really make it far. Although they do have the easy side of the, the World and, Cup. And, and uh, um, well, I mean, is it an easy pool? Who knows? Because it's, it's them, Wales, <laughs> so that's a bit of a mess. Fiji, Georgia, Fiji, who you know, haven't been poor this tour. Yes, they ended up fine at the end of the game, you know, but they traditionally always play better at World Cups. Georgia, who beat Wales. Yeah. And then you even got a team like Portugal, who might just be you know, optimistic of the odd upset. So you know, that, that pool is really going to be interesting to see. I don't necessarily think it's a pool of death, but there definitely can be room for a couple of upsets across the board. You know, we might see a Japan 2015 type situation where like someone like Georgia ends up winning three, two out of three games or Fiji, sorry, wins two out of four games or something like that and doesn't qualify. And I think points difference, bonus points are really going to be key here in that pool. It's going to be a very interesting one to keep an eye on. Yeah, I mean, I think all the teams are going to have to be on the ball for every single game. It's not like, <laughs> yeah, you just think, oh, it's Portugal's first World Cup. Or like you said, Fiji, when they have more time to get the four World Cups, they're generally up their performance. Um, so we'll see. And Wales, I mean, they also have a lot of injuries at the moment. They also didn't have their international or their English-based and French-based players. I don't know if they have any French-based players. But they had it was. A, not, yeah. not really. I mean, only, oh, who did they lose? Rhys Samet? Samet. Um, I guess they don't lose more biggest injured anyway. But normally they lose bigger. Yeah, so, um, yeah, yeah sure. but I mean, you can't compare the injury list to the Wallabies. I think in the Wallabies team, it's genuinely, there's only one person playing that game that's in their normal standard starting, starting lineup. Like, yeah, I can't remember exactly who they were suggesting, but it's pretty much just one. It's Ikitao. Yeah, Ikitao is probably the only person that starts in the full-strength Wallaby team. <laughs> like, yeah. That was as as bad as our B team playing Wales. Yeah, that's fair, that's fair. I, but I, I do think one of the big turning points in this match was when Anscombe went up injured. I think um, yes. he, he was playing really well as well, not even really well but he was controlling the game for Wales as much as they could and when he went off they just lost that sort of control um I really like Anthony for a while and it's disappointing that he's just had so many injury issues and also I have the momentum I saw someone gave they were talking about all the various bench impacts and they said you know Ned Hannigan was very impactful because it was his hip that, that damaged oh. bigger shoulder and that was not bigger, um, Anson Scholder, and that was, you know, his, his big contribution to the game was injury Anskin. I mean, yeah, like uh, I said, which, I, I, which, you know, I for Hannigan, that's a pretty impactful, a pretty impactful uh, event. And then he's, I don't know, I'm not a biggest fan. Normally, that's more saw doing better. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I, I do want to mention from Wales' side, I think the two other players, maybe it's just those two who played really well. Uh, Jack Morgan, especially at the beginning of the game in the first half, he was all over the place. He was having a really, really good game. And he's been threatening and threatening it for a while. Like um, even at URC level, he's one of those sort of energetic players. He's not the like biggest guy, but he plays, you know, like above his weight grade. I think that's sort of is, is he the player that 
was like everyone was really upset about him not being selected for the June tour, and they said it was because he was too small. Was that Morgan Morris? I think it might have been him because Morgan Morris is bigger and an eight man. I, but I, sometimes I think they go through this quite a lot because it was also the case with um, what was that other guy's name? They've, they've had a few like loose forwards who come in and out. Like they've had Ellis Jenkins. Was that his name? I was, I, Yes, and then also, I mean, I saw Aaron Wainwright. I mean, he was the guy that got elbowed in the face at the World Cup, last World Cup, and that's what he yeah. was this weekend. Like, yeah, I mean, what happened to him? Like, for, for a small and not very good team, their their strength is definitely, their strength and depth is their loose forwards. I mean, they even have had guys like Tane Basham who are also pretty good, but obviously... Yeah, where's he? Also they're just cycling <laughs> through it. It's, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, I Maybe mean... None of them are actually that good, and they just, you know... So even even, even the Dragons, who are the worst Welsh team, currently have pretty decent like forwards playing really badly against the Lions. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> so Jack Morgan, but also uh, Telefona Falatau, he was really good again. Like um, he's not young anymore, but like he was making a really really positive impact and lots of um, positive gains in terms of like run meters and meters with the ball in hand. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just those two probably were the only ones, and Anscombe, who were unlucky to be on the wrong side of the scoreboard. The rest was not particularly good. Yeah, but I mean, it, it just Wales, I just don't think are particularly good at the moment. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's they, they, it's just like Australia. You know? they're, not a, they're not a tier one team. They, yes, they can, on their day, knock, knock, off, knock off someone, but I don't think that either of them are going to be consistently pushing through all the way to the end, which... Is it going to be very interesting for the World Cup? Because, you know, that that's comment can apply to Argentina and England as well. You know, all of them are on the day they can be a handful, but yeah. And then uh, there's, also, there's Scotland who could really throw a cat amongst the pigeons on the other side of the or in South Africa and Ireland's group. So if they pull something out the bag, who knows? I mean, maybe that's a bit more of a push. But Scotland have it in them. They do like somewhere, maybe once in a, you know. 20 yeah, I, feel, I feel like that's a bit of a stretch to, to, to suggest that Scotland are gonna. I just don't. I just don't see them by the World Cup. I mean, yes, maybe in the Six Nations they can hot knock over that team, but I don't. I don't see by the time we get to a World Cup, them I'd being on six enough to knock. I'd love to see Scotland be the island. It would be a lot of fun. I agree. I would love it. I just don't think it's particularly realistic. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I, I think the other teams are just going to be too primed and ready uh, to, to let something like that happen. And, but you know, again, I'd be very happy to be proven wrong. Um, I definitely have more of a soft spot for the Scots than I do for the Irish, for sure. Before we move on from this game, I believe you have one more loser um, in the terms of a Welsh individual. In terms of a Welsh individual. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we did we did chip chip him. I think it was last week or the week before for his stupid long hair. Uh, but you know, he got given given captaincy, so maybe we should have given him credit. But given his actions on the game, I mean, you said that well, the, the first turning point was, or a turning point was Anskin's injury. I think the second turning point was very much the, the yellow card to Tipperick. Um, you know, for the call it instinct, call it what you want, but you know, tripping Pete Samuel on the intercept was not a good strategy. Um, then I mean, I don't think you know trips just don't work at this level. Obviously, there's so many cameras like. You are going to get caught out, um, and, and props to the TMO for 
no long shield swords and he flagged the dance Restory, which was a very valid trip in the other card. But I think you know, that's just a, a very, very silly action by your captain uh, and definitely aided the turnaround in fortunes, I think. Yeah, it was actually a really sneaky one. I don't think I necessarily saw it like in real time. I mean, only when they looked at it in the replay, so I, I thought Simon just sort of, you know, was running too fast and fell over. <laughs> but um, that's, just, that's something we can we can touch on in a second. Um, but before we get that, I just want to, you know, the, one of the, I suppose the more, maybe not frustrating thing, because it's not that I'm invested in Wales, but there didn't seem to be much remorse from Tipperick. Like maybe it was because they were still, you know, 20 or whatever months points ahead, but you know, he kind of walked off the field, laughing, joking. You know, you know, you compare that to some of the, the Springboks reactions when they've given away cards. You know, they feel like emotionally hurt yeah. about doing it. Whereas he was kind of like didn't seem to care. And it was, I don't know, yeah, I don't know if they were, how how far ahead they were at the time, and if maybe he thought it wasn't going to be as impactful as it was. But um, especially, like you said, as a captain, it's really like if you're a Welsh fan and you see that sort of thing, that's the sort of thing that makes you just feel a lot less for you know, the players and not want someone like that to be your captain. So, yeah, agreed, agreed. Yeah, uh, but then the final thing is just that there was a, I mean, it was, this is probably why we weren't surprised that Zami fell over, but uh, the roof apparently had a mechanical malfunction, so it couldn't close all the way in what was a very wet and muddy night. And so the pitch, for the most part, was fine, apart from this one strip down the middle, which is like a <laughs> fire. <laughs> It's just ridiculous yeah. how how it's just, it's just really funny. <laughs> like, on the day of a big international match, somehow the roof like malfunctioned. So I I mean I don't know how mechanically how these things work in any case, but <laughs> it just seems a bit amateur, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just feel that like you know all these northern hemisphere stadiums need to get their the systems in place. Um, you know, with the TMO, the French communications going down, the Welsh stadium not working. Like, I don't know. Maybe they should have given us the World Cup. Our stadiums actually still work. I mean, they may be really old, you know, some of our stadiums, but they still work. You know, Ellis Park is still going strong despite not having a lot of people inside. Um, yeah, maybe maybe we can move on from there to some of the URC games this weekend. So we had four South African teams playing at home, all against Welsh teams. Uh, it was all looking pretty good, 3-0 down, and then the Sharks entertained Cardiff at home on Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening even, late on Sunday, um, with what surely was going to be a whitewash and a 4-0. But um, the weather turned quite nasty in in Durban, as sometimes happens in November. Um, and do you want to take us through who might be, a, I guess, we're looking at losers if we're being honest with ourselves from the Sharks game. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely don't think there are any winners. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I must admit, I don't know what to take out of the Sharks game. It was a a really just lackluster, poor performance. There was no ideas. There was no... Yeah, it's just... I'm looking at the I mean, what... It was a B team. Um, but still, 35-0 at home. I mean, that's a... A shocking performance in anyone's book. Um, I don't think there's any way you can kind of sugarcoat that or, or pretend it is anything other than it is, which is just abject. Like that 
the scoreline on its own is just like it makes anyone sit up and be like, what? What just happened? I think that happened on one of our WhatsApp groups. It's like it's almost unbelievable when you think maybe what the Sharks get like two red cards in the first like 10 minutes or something. How is the scoreline that bad? But it just was like it was that bad of a performance. Um, I think I like compared the lineups like the Sharks and the Stormers had a, like the same number of players making their first uh, you know, game of the URC, like some off the bench, some starting. And I think Sharks had maybe one or two more Springboks out, but like really, really, relatively similar, you know, in terms of having to lean on their squad depth. And I don't really know if it's a depth issue. Like if you look at the Sharks team, like they're, yeah, they're not all the greatest players and some of them might wonder about, you know, their talent. But generally, I would still think it's more than enough talent to beat. But, touring Welsh team. I think for me, the and to be fair, I didn't watch the whole game. So the parts where I watched, this was very much play where, where they were already obviously 20 points down or whatever, but they were just not playing to the conditions at all. And I don't know if it's like a sort of naivety or arrogance type of thing. You know, they're the big spending sharks and they have this pressure to perform so well. So trying to run the ball around a bit more and maybe trying to you know, do something a bit more exciting. But like in those sort of conditions, I think they just got completely outplayed. And um, like, if you look at the stats, they ran more of the ball and they had a lot more running meters and that sort of thing. But that doesn't really matter when the conditions are that bad. Yeah, um, no, they, they, I think that's exactly the issue. They just didn't seem to know what they were trying to achieve or how to achieve it. So they just kind of just ran blindly and hoped. And yeah. then obviously in those conditions, that is ridiculous. I mean, you know, the conditions were horrific. Uh, we were chatting on the group, but I mean, it was so bad. It was messing up the, the like superimposed graphics on the field, <laughs> um, you know, which is, it was, it was awful. Um, but, but that being said, you know, the Welsh team were able to put together enough phases, enough structure to get 35 points and the Sharks just abjectly didn't. Yeah. And, and I think it does speak to poor coaching and possibly poor captaincy. Um, I'm not sure who started as captain because I know who Tulesi was on. It was James, James Fenter was the starter. And I mean, he's not young anymore. He's mid-twenties, I think. But I, he's also not, I, for me, I don't think I would, he doesn't strike me as like the biggest in terms of captain material. But I think it, it definitely speaks to poor coaching. And as we said at the beginning, like Sean Everett has paid the price of the defeat, whether it's mutually agreed or not, like they're going to find someone new at some point. Uh, Neil Powell has taken over for the time being. Um, but yeah, do you think, and do you think it's a quick turnaround or do you think this season, given they still have to play a whole Champions Cup, you know, tournament, um, there's a lot on the line to make Champions Cup the next year too. Do you think that they should look to get someone new in or just wait and be patient for next year? Yeah, look, it's an interesting one. Eh? I mean, I, I, look, I think there's been, we do need to acknowledge there's been a lot of criticism of the Sharks over the last two years. I mean, Everett's had a success with the Sharks at Curry Cup level. And, you know, that first season when he was in charge, 2020, uh, the COVID one, um, you know, the Sharks were sitting top of the log. They'd beaten the Crusaders in Christchurch, but I think so. You know, they were they were having a really good season. The players were informed. So he deserved to, you know, was deserve, deservedly the coach. But since COVID stopped, he's really, the Sharks have not progressed and they have not delivered um, to the level that their squad deserves or demands. Um, 
you know, they've, they've really been relying on a fairly dominant forward pack and then just moments of freak brilliance. Like, they've, they've, I can't count the number of games that they won that they really didn't deserve to win, but they just did because, you know, Fussy or um or someone just did something a bit unusual um, and managed to win the game as, as a result of that. You know, so it's 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 really not been a a good time for the Sharks, um, and despite you know them being what a sniff away from the semi-finals last year. Uh, yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's it's a it's a weird place for the Sharks to be in, but I don't think I don't think a change in coach is overdue. I think there's there's been enough criticism of of the Sharks for long enough that the coach change was needed. Is um, Neil Powell the right guy to do it? Is he going to turn things around? I don't know. I mean, he's, he's obviously got enough success with the sevens, but he's never coached a 15 side, let alone been head coach, you know, and turned around in the middle of the season. So, yeah, it's going to be a, a very interesting experiment. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I know as a non-Sharks fan, just... Sharks for me are just always one of the most frustrating teams to watch in terms of wanting to see a good game because they it feels like they're always playing under their potential, which is again one of the things which um, as a fan or as someone who wants to see their team do well is just so frustrating, but also many points to not the greatest coaching. Um, yeah, but I think let's move on to some of the other South African teams. I managed to watch the Bulls game on Saturday and I think that was one of the strongest performances from the South African team on the weekend. Um, yeah, they are obviously not as hard hit by so many um, players being out with the Springboks, but some of the players who aren't even close to the Springboks set up really put their hands up for me. So David Krill had a really good game, and I think we mentioned him before this year. Just he's in quite some form and still flying relatively under the radar. I think he's sort of played all around the back line, like center wing fullback but he was on the wing this weekend and he scored two really nice tries but he's also involved with um like almost all their good moments and especially their good breaks um so he seems to be doing something right this year in terms of making sure his own form is really good and consistent but i'm hoping yeah he can carry on yeah i mean i think we've we've mentioned him before well obviously before the break um he is he's running into really nice vein of form um i think Somewhat surprisingly, I don't think anyone, any of us pegged him as a, a superstar player, but he's really growing well in that Bulls environment and delivering strongly. As as I think most of the Bulls players are, to be fair, there's there's very few deadweight players in that environment. You know, every time they give a young guy a chance, he seems to be stepping up and delivering. Um, you know, I mean, you can look at guys like Rudy and Jacob, or Kane and Moody, for example. I mean, there's a lot of really good guys that are. Um, yeah, play, playing their part and stepping up with the environment, which is so obviously whatever Jake's doing, loving him or hating, he's he's yeah. <laughs> I, I was creating about to say, a lecker a lecker environment for players to thrive in. I was about to say, as much as it pains me to say, points to Jake White having done something right and setting up the healthy sort of systems and that whole sort of crusaders type of effect where they just put in a young player and he's like, wow, this guy is playing really well because he's you know, kind of playing the crusaders. Um, but yeah, the other guy was also, and it's, it's just consistency, I think, more than anything else. But like Ruan Nokia for the Bulls, it's like, oh. especially disappointment of, you know, not quite being involved with the Springboks as much as he would like. But putting that 
path behind him and just playing week in, week out, before the break, after the break, like just having strong games, like not just because, I mean, he scored another try this weekend, but like dominating the lineup, being good in the loose, also making like high tackle numbers every game. So he's really just like consistently strong. So hopefully we'll I mean, see more of him in the Springbok shirt. And before, uh, before I go to you, sorry, I just want to say, I actually thought before he dropped the ball, with, just before he went off, I thought it was um, Ari's, one of Ari's stronger performances um, on the weekend. So despite us not being massive Ari fans, I, I think he did relatively well. But go ahead, Ed. No, I was, I was just going to say that, you know, I mean, I think Ruan Konokia has, as, as you said, he's, he's had an incredibly strong, strong two seasons. Then um, I think he's, he was one of the few players to stand out, maybe not the few players, but he was definitely one of the players to stand out in the SAA two games. Um, yeah, and I think he's he's obviously just showing that that consistency. And I think hopefully it's a similar situation to Evan Ruiz, you know, that he's been given some guidance for whatever reasons. Um, he's not in the Springbok squad. He's going to keep going back, keep grafting, working, and you know he'll get his chance. Um, I you know I don't see him not being involved in the Springboks for a long for yeah for a while. Like he will keep being involved. I think. Um, but you know, I think we, we as you say, it's, it's fair to give Ari his credit. He did have one of the strongest games. Um, that drop was obviously horrific, but he wasn't the only player to drop a kickoff. So um, you know, we can't I single him out for that. Uh, yeah, no, it was Ari did do do better than I was expecting. I think. Sure. Yeah. Which is pretty high praise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, better than expected. Yeah. Which. I mean, depending on expectations, maybe not so high praise. Um, yeah, so I also just want to touch on the Lions match. I, I I was really, really frustrated with it and only feeling better about it, I think, because of the Sharks' performance, which sort of put it into perspective. So not winning with a bonus point and just playing awfully but still winning. Um, the biggest frustration for me was just how limited the way that they chose to play was. Like, for me, the Dragons are possibly the worst team in the league, probably not quite as bad as Zebra, but they came second last last year, I think. Um, touring to South Africa is always hard. This was a game where I think the Lions really could have just played the Dragons off their feet if they wanted, but they really had no desire to, and they, it, they were worse than the box were against Ireland in terms of no sort of plan, game plan with um, the backs, and it was literally one of runners the whole game, uh, except for drop goals and some bits of loose play. But I think Rabs Matsquane got the ball for the first time in like the 75th minute off, and um, Edward <laughs> like didn't touch it at all. But it was ridiculous. Every time the Lions had the ball, the back line just completely disappeared. Like both centers, Marius Lowe and Henk Kuffenbeck, they're pretty good players, but they both have that sort of flank mentality of getting very involved in the ruck and being close to that side. So the back lines just disappeared the whole time. and. We were talking earlier, like Jordan Hendricks was the official man of the match, and he had very good stats and scored a very good fantasy score for Ant that he was happy with. I was, I was um, very, well, I mean, he carried my fantasy team. <laughs> yeah, and so he got like 60 or 70 points or something. But he was probably two, let's be, on, let's be exact. <laughs> sure, sure. Well done. You got your win. You're ahead of me now in the league, so nice. <laughs> um, yeah, don't be bitter. Yeah. <laughs> As you said, there's still seven weeks of tournament left. Yeah, but the main thing was just as the fly half, I think he like I expect him to try and control and make sure that his back line is a bit more functional. So just not having that sort of control, it felt 
I don't know. Just uh, like I, I think I've seen him do so much better in the past, but also part of it was just such a game plan thing. So perhaps, perhaps I'm being harsh on him for you know taking the responsibility for that. But it was just such a frustrating performance for me to watch from the lines. Um, do you think this, this, this? Do you think this underlines that Lombard should still be the first choice? Because I mean, when Lombard came back, you know, we kind of mm-hmm. assumed that he was just kind of holding the jersey for a game, and then obviously played really well, and kind yeah. of demoted. Uh, Hendrix, so Hendrix obviously didn't go on tour with the SAAs. You know, so there's, who knows, maybe there's a bit of rustiness, maybe there's a bit of rotation that he got the jersey back from from Lombard. But, you know, I mean, do you think on this performance, Lombard's still going to be the first choice? I think, no, I think that Hendrix is a better option in good weather. So I think the weather thing was the most, um, the, the biggest reason for Lombard starting. So I think in the more difficult conditions, Lombard has a bit, a bit of, like, he does have a bit more control of the game, I think. But generally, when the forwards are dominating, which the Lions forwards were, and having good front football and being able to see more of the ball and running, I think I would prefer to see Henriksen. And I think he had that opportunity this weekend, but they just didn't take it. But um, yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I don't know if I can put the full blame on him. But um, yeah, Lions still got a win. They didn't get a bonus point. Um, and they weirdly, they have to play the Dragons twice against again this season because they're playing them. How's that work? They're playing them in the oh, Challenge Oh, right, Cup. yes. But originally, they were, you're not supposed to play your URC teams that are in your group, but because Worcester and Wasps have dropped out, they're playing the URC teams. So they play again at Ellis Park in like two weeks' time, and then they play again. In That's the- a very good point. I didn't actually even think about that. So so what's the story there with uh, um, Worcester and, and Wasps? So, um, how is that being handled in the, the Champions Cup? Uh, so they're both in the Challenge Cup, so the uh, oh, Champions okay. Cup at least is unaffected. But in the Challenge Cup, there are groups of four, I think. So instead of, so normally you play the other two teams in your group, because there's also a fellow league team, so the Lions weren't supposed to play the Dragons because they're also in the URC. So because they can't play Worcester anymore, they are now playing Dragons. So because of that, playing three so, times. So, so, so did they did they add... Um, no new teams, yeah. Uh, you said they didn't add teams, they're just kind of making up fixtures. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So they're playing you their teams in the same league, so like a French team is gonna play French teams, whereas before they were only gonna play teams in other leagues. Okay, I see, I see, I see. Oh, that's so, interesting. So yeah. Um well, at least they know that they can beat them when they play shit. So that means, you know, in theory there's a higher ceiling there. Yeah, hope so. Hope so. Although yeah. I presume the Dragons will get more test players back than the Lions will, considering the Lions don't have test players. Um, I don't know if the drag the Dragons do either. I'm trying to think. I think they have the luck there. Will Rollins? Not sure. Okay. Who else. Well, apparently he's <laughs> going to Bath now, so who knows? Yeah. But he's one of their better players, I think. But I don't no, know. No, Rollins is Rollins is solid. But I mean, again, it's a lock. He's not going to win you games on his own. Yeah. Not Elizabeth. Right. I I don't think any of the best Welsh players play for the Dragons. They're like the yeah, but probably the lions. They like they like they like the lions, <laughs> which is kind of sad. But like, yeah, sometimes you have to be. Oh, look! Yourself. I mean, the lion, the lions are ahead of the sharks and the logs, so you know. Yeah, that's true. Still top half, which is positive. Um, where, where are the sharks actually sitting on the log now? I mean, they must be sitting like ninth or tenth or something. Look, they do have the game in hand, but still. Yeah, and I think it's pretty congested in that area of the log, so literally yeah. they just need a, to put a small run together. But now it's really yeah. Um, because they play this week and then there's a break for the European matches and then there's a couple of Christmas matches and then there's another break. So 
you know, we were saying there's like not that many games left, but it, the, the season only finishes in like May and June, so <laughs> there's a long time yeah. to play those matches. Um, no, I don't. I don't like this. I much prefer the the ways we used to do it with like you know Curry Cup test matches, um, through Super Rugby, all separate events and kind of all self-contained. I don't like this. Have Champions Cup in amongst URC, in amongst um, Six Nations. It all feels very odd. Yeah, exactly. I don't, know, I don't know why. I mean, it seems like just a bad structure. Why do they do that? I think it. Yeah, it's more of just the traditional like season length intermingling cups with your main league type of vibe that generally European yeah. sports works on. But um, that sounds like something they should fix. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, just. Quickly, the Stormers also had a pretty comprehensive win on Friday evening against the Scarlets. They're playing in Gebecha this weekend, which should be interesting. I think they're playing the Dragons, so they should have a relatively comfortable win, given all that we've said about the Dragons. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, from next week, or maybe not next week, but going forward, we're going to be working on a slightly different schedule. So, um, Ant, I'm just going to pass over to you to briefly explain our format going forward. Yeah, so I think when we, when we kind of I don't want to say retook over or hijacked the pod <laughs> from the original chance. Um, you know, the, the focus was going to be on the Springbok games um, and then kind of coming out of the test window, we, we just got excited and kept going. Um, but I think we're going to try and revert our focus back to that. So we'll probably shift to a slightly more irregular schedule, uh, potentially once a month while the test matches are not happening. So until rugby championship next year, um, but you know, we'll still keep, keep regular content coming out Um Right, but again, with a more of a Springbok-focused mindset, maybe a type of rock barometer. You know, who's which Springbok players really performed well over the last month? Who's going to break into the World Cup squad? That's obviously a big focus for next year. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what we're looking at. Um, and yeah, hopefully you'll you'll join us on that journey. And rest assured, when the Springboks are back in full flight, we'll be back with you every week, and you know, as often as we need to be during the World Cup um, or for all the games that are coming up then. Yeah, I mean, we have a pretty steady roster of, you know, you, me and Andrew. Unfortunately, he hasn't been up to of us for this week and last week because he's busy looking at lots of new birds in Zimbabwe, um, which is very exciting. They bring out new additions. I mean, I know <laughs> there's a new Pokemon came out. Did, did new birds get released with that? Uh, sometimes you can find them in the deepest, darkest areas of you know, places. <laughs> Who knows? He found a shiny. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that will... So we won't see you next week, but we will see you at least once more before the end of the year. Um, and like Anne said, we hope that you join us. Um, we'll also perhaps be joined by a nice surprise on one of the original, the OGs, if they can make it on. They're always keen, but obviously very busy with a bit more happening in their lives. So we'll see if we can arrange that. But um, <laughs> but anyway, well, yeah, that's all for this week. Ant, is there anything on a parting note that you want to say? Um, yeah, no, nothing, nothing too much from my side. I think we, yeah, as you say, we might do one more episode before the end of the year, do kind of a, a full season recap of the Springbox or something like that. Um, that are kind of some predictions of where we stand, where we thought we'd be, and how we're looking for next year. But yeah, until then, uh, yeah, have a good one. Yeah, cheers for me.